You're listening to The Dworkin Report, and I'm your host, Scott Dworkin. On today's podcast, we've got Greg Bluestein, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's political reporter and author of Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Swing states define the trends of American politics, and Greg's book is a time capsule of what it took to flip a southern state that turned solid GOP for a generation back into the Democratic column, at least for a trio of statewide races in 2020. Joe Biden's stunning electoral victory and the Georgia special election that followed flipped the Senate, setting the stage for a series of major bipartisan and sometimes single-party bills that Democrats have passed into law over the last two years. Now that Georgia's governorship and Senate are back up for grabs in the 2022 midterm election, the political world's eyes will return to Atlanta again in just a few short weeks. Democrat Stacey Abrams is facing off against current Republican Governor Brian Kemp in a rematch of 2018 after a GOP party-line vote implemented numerous new voting restrictions. Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock's re-election race against Herschel Walker is expected to be close, and Greg Bluestein dropped a clue about what could turn that last race in this podcast. Take a listen. I'm here with Atlanta Journal-Constitution reporter Greg Bluestein, who wrote the book Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power, about Georgia's January 5, 2021 special election that gave Democrats control of the Senate. Thanks for joining us on the pod today, Greg. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor. No, it's, uh, uh, you know, your reporting has been superb, uh, obviously, and it's been so important. Um, you know, before we get into the book, though, I wanted to ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself in case they don't know and your path into political journalism. What got you interested in writing about politics and why did you choose to work in Georgia? Yeah, well, I'm a Georgia native. I'm an Atlanta native. I grew up just north of the city. And believe it or not, it was Braves baseball that got me into uh, wanting to be a journalist. Um, I, uh, I just became obsessed with uh, the Braves' worst to first season in 1991 and loved everything about uh, the Braves. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's beat writer, I.J. Rosenberg, came to speak to my fourth grade class. I don't remember what he said. don't remember the message he had. I just remember going home and telling my mom I wanted to be a reporter. And from that moment on, you know, it was kind of in the back of my mind. Um, and of course, I decided pretty early on I didn't want to be a sports reporter because I wanted to actually root for, root for a team. And I'm one of the biggest Braves fans around. Uh, we can talk all about Freddie Freeman later. But, but uh, I became, uh, you know, uh, obsessed with covering uh, Georgia politics. And it's sort of, you know, it's, it's sort of my passion for better or for worse. And, you know, not so long ago, that meant covering Georgia through a national lens, right? In, the, in 2016, Georgia was kind of an afterthought. So that meant going to Iowa and Ohio and New Hampshire, learning about what Georgians were doing there and what the candidates were talking about, how it related to Georgia. And then in 2017, that all changed. 2017, with John Ossoff's special election campaign for U.S. House seat, Georgia became the center of political attention. Um, and it really hasn't, that, that national spotlight really hasn't left Georgia since then. Right. And I, I grew up an Indians slash Guardians fan and uh, in North Carolina. So there were Braves fans everywhere and uh, Indians losing at that time over and over again. 
Uh, so congratulations for the Braves and the, the victories. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> I have a cu- curiosity. I'm just like, what was the first story you ever covered? You know, well, it was in, in fifth grade at Woodland Elementary. Is Woodland catches Braves fever? But the real first story I ever covered was um, was years later. Um, I worked for my the North Springs Oracle in my high school, so I covered, you know, whatever was going on at North Springs, but at UGA, University of Georgia, one of the first things I did was join the Red and Black, which was the independent student newspaper. And I learned so many valuable lessons there, starting with write to your audience, right? Um, I was there during 9-11, and I wrote all these stories about the Taliban and what was happening in Afghanistan and Iraq. And um, a smart professor pulled me aside and he goes, yeah, your, your, your work is fine, but why would anyone read what you're writing about Afghanistan? when they don't know what's happening at the university or how the university is responding to 9-11 and, and all the threats and, and you know, how society and culture have changed. And I took that to heart and try to remember that in all my stops in journalism, which is, you know, know your audience and write to it. So I started writing a lot more about UGA at that point and, and student government. And it's fascinating, too, because a lot of the characters, the people that I covered at UGA when I was there are still people I cover today. The, the student government president, when I was the editor of the Red and Black, is now running for U.S. Senate as a Republican. Um, the, the SGA president right before him is one of the top lawyers for the Democratic Party of Georgia. And I sat in class with all these people who are now lawmakers or operatives and all these things. So it's really it's really been fun to see how the uh, how the circle keeps on turning. Right. And um, so you, you're, the book, at its heart is about an election decided by nearly 4.5 million Georgia voters. In your opinion, this is probably, you know, a question you get asked all the time. How, how did the 2020 election impact the Georgia special election, in your opinion? Yeah, well, you know, it, it was a the roadmap, really, right? The 2020 election was the roadmap for the special election. Because of the four candidates, none of them tried to appeal to the middle. None of them tried to go to go convince swing voters or undecided voters. Uh, to vote for them because there were so few of them to go decide. Instead, um, they played to the exact same base that they played to in 2020. Kelly Loeffler, David Perdue, John Ossoff, Raphael Warnock, they all kind of calculated smartly that if they could just get the same exact electorate that came out in November 2020 to come back out in January 2021, they'd win, you know, because uh, special elections usually have far lower turnout. In this case, you know, you still had an extremely high turnout special election because so much was riding on it. Um, but you had both both parties, all four candidates, play to their bases. And uniquely, you had them kind of band together. John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock formed a bromance on the campaign trail. A young Jewish white guy, um, a slightly older uh, black pastor, banding together, recreating this sort of black Jewish alliance that we haven't seen in a long time in the South, at least. Uh, how did the relationship between Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, and the former president impact these races? And if they may, maybe mended those, uh, do you think it could have turned out differently? You know, I don't know what else Brian Kemp could have done to, to placate um, Donald Trump. Uh, Trump was one of Kemp's biggest supporters early on. I mean, he, Brian Kemp might have won the Republican nomination for governor in 2018 without Donald Trump's help, but his endorsement six days before the runoff vote fueled a runaway route of his Republican opponent. Um, and then tension started fraying, certainly over Kemp's pick of Kelly Leffler for the open Senate seat. Donald Trump 
would have preferred Doug Collins at, at, at one point, um, wanted to be more in the loop. But, you know, Donald, uh, Brian Kemp isn't, isn't DeSantis, right? He's not someone who's going to constantly kind of call up Donald Trump and, and, and try to curry favor with him. He just felt like being a strong conservative Republican was, was doing that job, and he had a job to run in Georgia. And he, at times, advisors told him, hey, you need to, you know, call him, and, call him up and talk about college football. Call him up and just, you know, shoot the breeze with him. Just just talk to him. And that, that just wasn't something that, that Brian Kemp wanted to do or just was not in his um, was not on his agenda. And you saw the relationship starting to fray even before the November election, certainly after it. And to me, that sort of dividing point was when Donald Trump called on Kemp to resign. And I said, oh, there's no turning back here. And since then, it's only gotten worse. I mean, at a rally in September here in Georgia, Trump even said he'd rather see Stacey Abrams as governor than Brian Kemp. And to a Republican, that's like the worst possible insult. Right. And then he gave her a bunch of compliments that, I, you know, he's trying to barb. I guess Kemp, but uh, uh, also on top of everything else, there was coronavirus and massive surge at the end of 2020. Uh, one of several, but former Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell said that his uh, candidates were getting hammered on coronavirus relief. I was one of those people hammering them. Uh, how how do you think this affected the outcome of special election races? Just the uh, COVID. Well, you know, the Democrats could just point to coronavirus relief over and over again. If you vote for us, you'll get paychecks. You'll get you'll get checks in the mail, right? There was billboards all over Atlanta and all over Georgia that said, "Vote Democratic, get stimulus checks." And Republicans, meanwhile, were fighting over the size of the checks. Donald Trump kept them kind of moving the goalpost and changing his mind over whether or not um, it should be a couple hundred dollars or a couple thousand dollars. Uh, Mitch McConnell was, you know, in the middle of that debate and was more restrained on on where he thought those paychecks should go. Uh, and how, how big those stimulus checks should be. Um, and so Democrats could kind of unify behind that message. It's very simple, right? It's something that you can remember. Vote Democratic, get stimulus checks. <laughs> you know, not, not a bad argument to make in a nine-week runoff period, whereas Republicans were fighting over, you know, everything. But, but really, the heart of it was loyalty to Donald Trump and their fight over loyalty to Donald Trump and questions that Trump had. You know, every so often, he'd kind of like, um, raise the specter that, hey, he might, you know, he might not endorse or he might not push for Kelly Leffler because she hasn't been sufficiently loyal. There was always those whispers going on. And in the end, according to the folks close to Donald Trump who talked to me, he was happy. He was happy that the two Republicans lost the Senate runoffs because he felt they hadn't fought for them hard enough. Yeah, it was, we were all running on fumes at that point, everybody, obviously. And then we were like, oh, wait, we have more work to do. And it was like, <laughs> oh, great. OK, so there's just another fight and another and another. Um, I, I, I guess as of right now, how does uh, Warnock's reelection effort look? You know, you can look at it both ways. You can look at, hey, he's facing these tremendous headwinds. Um, the party in power usually loses seats and Democrats obviously are in power. There's inflation concerns. Voters in Georgia are very worried about rising costs of gas, and household products, and logistics problems. The AJC polls show that um, every time they come out. Um, so that you can look at as, okay, he's, he's facing a really uphill climb. But on the other hand, Herschel Walker is the Republican frontrunner for Senate. He just moved here from Texas um, a few months ago. Uh, he has a long history of violence and erratic behavior 
questions about his businesses, um, a lot of things that still haven't been answered. Um, and when he does go on the media, and he's usually talking to very friendly outlets, when he does go on, he, he makes a lot of blunders, a lot of gaffes, a lot of strange and bizarre and compounding statements. Um, and so in a head-to-head matchup with, with Rafael Warnock, Democrats are pretty uh, optimistic about how that would shape out. Then again, you know, going back to the previous point, you can't underestimate Herschel Walker's name recognition, the fact that Georgians like me who grew up hearing about stories of his, of his legendary athletic feats, you know, even if we, we don't know, even if for a long time we didn't know where his political standing was, I grew up hearing stories about how great he was as a football player. So his, his name recognition is, is almost universally known in Georgia, and, and that counts for a lot. And I guess, how do you think the new voting law in Georgia is going to affect the 2022 midterms and, of course, Senator Warnock's race? Yeah, that's one of the biggest questions remaining in Georgia, because we haven't had a real test of those um, of those new rules. We had a municipal elections last year, but those were relatively lower, lighter turnout. Um, the primaries are going to be a tremendous turnout, and, of course, the general will be even, even higher. And... What we do know is there's more obstacles to vote. There's photo, photo ID requirements for mail-in ballots now. There's tighter deadlines to send in absentee ballots. There's more rules on restricting outside food and water being given out to, um, to people waiting in line. There's more limits for ballot drop boxes, and it gives the Republican-controlled legislature more power to intervene in local elections. So all that, and of course there's even more um, you know, kind of between the lines. It's a 90-something page uh, overhaul. So there's all sorts of new rules. Um, will it affect hundreds of thousands of votes? Probably not, but it, it could well affect thousands or maybe even tens of thousands of votes. And, and in another election cycle, like like we saw in 2020, that could be the outcome, right? I mean, Donald Trump and Joe Biden were just separated by about 11,000 votes. So if there is a new election law that could, could realistically affect 11,000 or 12,000 votes, and it's a race like we had in 2020, then you could be talking about a game-changing uh, format. What, what do you think uh, Democrats in competitive states and alternatively Republicans in competitive states can learn from Warnock and Offsa's victories in Georgia? Yeah, a couple things. I mean, they, they, they were authentic to themselves and to, their, and to progressive um, values, right? And they didn't try to run as Republican lights. And that happened in Georgia for a long time. You had a lot of um, Democratic candidates embracing a lot of the same agenda items that Republicans have. You had Democrats running as NRA Democrats. And it wasn't seen as anything, um, you know, shocking, because that's just how candidates in Georgia ran their elections. Uh, They they had to kind of run to the middle. And for the first time, really, it was 2018 with Stacey Abrams. You saw a, a, a credible Democratic contender running to the left and almost getting enough votes to flip the state. And it showed to Democrats there was a pathway for, for Democrats who embraced liberal and progressive policies like criminal justice reform, like gun control, like expanding voting rights access, like you know, all those things that we've been talking about in Georgia, plus expanding Medicaid, which is more of a broad-based issue. Um, but put all those together, and you had Democrats who could get very, you know, get very close to flipping the state. And flash forward to 2020, where John Ossoff, he ran as a liberal, like Rafael Warnock, he ran to the left and was able to galvanize and energize, um, especially black voters who, you know, who might've felt marginalized, who were sitting on the sidelines in other elections, who came out in droves to vote for both of those candidates. And in the course of doing that, 
change the direction of the country by giving Joe Biden and his in the White House and Democrats uh, control over Congress. And uh, as of right now, how do you think of uh, Stacey Abrams' chances for governor? She is. Uh, you never count Stacey Abrams out. You know, there's a lot of people who, after her narrative defeat in 2018, said, "Oh, you know, she's a goner. She'll she'll never reemerge." And even Brian Kemp marveled that she became even more popular in defeat than she was uh, during her candidacy. So, you know, she she stated this. Uh, you look no further than her own words. She wants to run for president one day. She's made no secret about that. Um, uh, but she also wants to be Georgia governor, and she is also committed to to not running in 2024 if she wins this election. So she she wants to be Georgia governor. This is her dream since she was a teenager. Um, and it's going to be very, very close no matter what happens. Um, Brian Kemp is looking very strong against David Perdue right now in the Republican primary. But but David Perdue has Donald Trump on his side. And David Perdue can boast of, of being the Trump-endorsed candidate. And Trump is helping him raise heaps of cash. So he's going to be competitive doing this final stretch. And no matter who emerges, Stacey Abrams has a freer hand right now to to go talk to a broader base of voters, right? She's still embracing liberal issues like voting rights and criminal justice reform. But right now, her main message is expanding Medicaid, something that polls show a broad majority of voters support. You can follow Greg at Bluestein on Twitter, which is B-L-U-E-S-T-E-I-N. Go follow him right now and pick up his book. It'll be in the episode's notes. It's Flipped. How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. Greg, thank you for joining me today. I look forward to talking to you again soon. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks again to Greg Bluestein for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Go get his book when you get a chance. Thanks again to Grant Stern. Follow him at Grant Stern on Twitter, our producer. Thanks again to Sam and Ben for your help on this episode. Listen to more episodes at twerkerreport.com. Thanks again for taking the time to listen. Be well. Do good. Onward!